This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast for the 3rd of September 2019, and here is my at least 85% complete co-host, Jon. At least 85% complete what? You've been calling me a lot of nice just, things uh, just before we started recording here, so now I'm really confused. <laughs> and yeah, yes, you're at, least, at least 85% there, I think. Uh, yeah, only the head is missing, which is usually what I do for these podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, all you'd need is a, well, I guess a head, some lungs, because you need the whole kind of air through the voice box thing, but maybe we only need 15% of you. Maybe close to 20. Hey, at least I'm biological anyway. again. Anyway, yeah, do your thing. Okay, YouTube. <laughs> we have a YouTube channel. I'm sure that this is news to some of you, because we, we still do? have less than 100 subscribers. And uh, yes, I will continue this uh, this uh, this tirade until we have a hundred subscribers. So please go to the go to the YouTube, put the roaring elephant into the YouTube, get the site up. It's us. It's audio only for now. Hit subscribe. Put some comments in. Maybe even re-listen to your favorite episodes. Uh, but yep, we're we're on our journey towards 100, 100 subscribers. We're getting close, so we just need one last push from all of you out there. Um, we can do it together. I have faith. Yeah, and thank you for the person who put in the comments on the YouTube video a week ago. Thank yep, you. Indeed. See, we ask for comments, we get comments. That's how it works. That's interaction for you. Absolutely. And uh, for those that uh, are looking for alternative ways, we also have a Patreon account. So if you're interested in uh, supporting the podcast, um, then uh, there are also benefits for becoming a Patreon. And you can see more about that. Uh, links in the show notes and links on the uh, on the rest of the page as well. Yes, we do like our patrons. We try to do as much as we can to make sure that your investment is uh, giving you some returns as well. We will continue to do that, but uh, we will need patrons in the future. So please, if you have a couple of bucks you can spare and you like our content, see if you can support us that way too. And if not, just spread the word. That helps as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So with that, um, 85%. So I joked about Jon being at least 85% here, but he's he's in good company because apparently 85% of companies are now operating in a multi-cloud environment. So this, I think this is, uh, we talk about lies, damn lies, and statistics. This is all about... How do you define cloud? And my guess here is they 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 really don't actually um, detail out exactly how they've how they've reached this. Now, this is uh, according this article is based on uh, a survey from IBM apparently, um, and I did not feel the need to go and read through the <laughs> IBM survey. Um, you know, if someone out there feels the need, then then go for it. But the the core of this article, to me, is that it's all based on how you define it. Now, I would define, I think, uh, based on the brief comment that Jon made before we started recording, I would define um, someone being truly multi-cloud if they are consuming um, infrastructure or SaaS services in a... Um, 
you know, in a programmatic way from more than one cloud provider. Um, what I would not consider to be cloud usage, even though I know that technically it, it is, um, is things like just because someone's using Salesforce or just because someone's using Google Docs. Or I, I know this is perhaps nitpicking, but I just, I don't consider, I know that it is technically running on cloud and all that sort of thing, but I, I just don't consider that to be um, that someone is a multi-cloud sort of enabled company. Um, thoughts? Disagree? Disagree? Well, one little caveat here is that it's coming from IBM, and I'm pretty sure that everybody's on IBM's cloud is doing multi-cloud because the IBM cloud just doesn't offer that much. But apart from that... <laughs> Um, the SaaS thing is the, the tricky part for me because the moment you start consuming a SaaS solution and if it's a good SaaS solution, let's just point it out as well, you don't know what cloud you're using. It's not a cloud, it's a or, black or, box, or, it's yeah, a or, service. Or it's, yeah. so, or if it's it, any cloud at all, it, exactly. it could be on the, that, that provider's own bare metal tin. Which for know. you would still be a cloud because it's somewhere on the interwebs. So for mm-hmm. me, multi-cloud means you know you have an account on a public cloud, because there's also, of course, the private clouds. I've got my VMware clusters yeah. on the left and my VMware clusters on the right. I've got two VMware clusters. Hey, I'm multi-cloud. <laughs> no, if you're doing the hype wording here, uh, multi-cloud means using more than one available public cloud. And to your uh, specification to SaaS services, yes, yeah, SaaS services just kind of take that away from you. So if you're only using SaaS services, you're actually not using cloud in that context. Yes, you're still using cloud services, but you're not doing multi-cloud because you don't care where the VM runs. That's the whole idea behind it. So unless if you're firing up some clusters, some VMs, networking topology, whatever, on one of the well, the three big ones, and they have Alibaba there as well, of course, and I guess IBM Cloud can be in there as well. Rackspace has something out there too still, I think. So unless you're using those things, you're not really doing multi-cloud, and you're not facing the hurdles and the difficulties around that. And uh, that's what really makes me cringe when I read the 85% there. Uh, no way, 85% of companies. Okay, 85% of companies say they want to do multi-cloud. I would even say 100% of the companies say that. Yeah, yeah. I honestly, let me think. Uh, I can think of one. I'm trying to think of a second company that I know professionally, so I'm not going to name any names, that actually does multi-cloud, but I can't find a second one. I I know of... I could probably count them on one hand. <laughs> maybe, maybe I might need a hand with six fingers, but I... That it's about that sort of number. Yeah, there's yeah, it, it's a it's a very small number. But again, that's that's based on our definition of multi cloud, um, and uh, depending yeah. entirely on how you how you make that definition is entirely on how those statistics actually mm-hmm. uh, line up. But hey, yeah. there we go. But the problem with this, these kind of articles is that some somebody reads this and thinks, oh my god, everybody's on multi cloud, and I'm not on multi cloud. I'm running behind. I need to do this too. Uh, make sure you talk with to a lot of people and just don't uh, capture the hype on this one because there's a very big difference between wanting to be multi-cloud and being multi-cloud. And when people mm-hmm. say they're multi-cloud, they're usually talking about SaaS services as far as I uh, as I know. 
Because, I mean, it's not easy to do multi-cloud. And uh, maybe just go deeper on this, why not? Uh, you can do multi-cloud in two different ways, as far as I can see it. Uh, not di- Already disregarding all the SaaS stuff. You can do multi-cloud mm-hmm. because public cloud provider A has a certain product you really want to use and works for you very well. And public cloud provider B has another thing that you also want to use. But the two things... Uh, well, maybe some logging gets interchanged between each other or something like that, some monitoring, but they're basically standalone things, which you basically use. I know the, the, the website yep. runs here and my finances run there. I don't know, just an example. Is that multi-cloud? Yep. Technically, yes. That's an easy multi-cloud because yep. they're totally siloed if if yep. you want to. You don't have to interact. You don't have to tie them together, do synchronizations, whatever. And that's the easy way to do multi-cloud. And that sometimes makes sense. And if I'm thinking of this one, I know more people, more companies out there that actually do multi-cloud in that, in that context. But for me, that's not yeah, real yeah, multi-cloud because yeah. when I hear the word multi-cloud in architectural sessions, it's about reducing risk, disaster recovery, scenarios and things like that. Dependence. By having, exactly, by having your stuff run active, passive, active, active on more than one public cloud provider. And that in, yep. in automatically means you have to make sure your data get replicated in a synchronous way. Because if you're asynchronous, then how much can you lose? How, how much can you recapture if you lose can and so on and so on? And that is such a big headache because networking in public cloud is always a bit of a headache. If you want to do it like this, oh my God. As I say, I, I know one company that does this. And I'm not even going to say successfully because I don't really know if it's actually successful. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say the the things that have made this somewhat easier and somewhat more possible Mm -hmm. for organizations to do is is the um, larger availability of Kubernetes. Well, Docker and Kubernetes. Yeah, yeah, but I I think specifically... Docker on its own, I don't think, made enough of an impact. I think now with all of the cloud providers having a certain level of Kubernetes service, you can argue between yourselves as to uh, who has the better service, but mm-hmm. um, all of them have some form of um, Kubernetes as a service, and this means that all of a sudden, if you if you are developing all of your own services and you're able to deploy them on Kubernetes, then all of a sudden it makes it very well, not very, that would be uh, oh. perhaps overcooking it a little bit, significantly easier to to go towards multi-cloud. Well, I'd say it makes it feasible to deploy your solution multi-cloud, but you're still going to hit that, how do I sync my data? How, am, how, how do of I course, sync my operations? Yeah, yeah. It's that not a, it's that not a doesn't get solved by Docker or Kubernetes. Uh, uh, once you have a Kubernetes cluster that can actually be deployed across clouds... Technically, theoretically, it should be possible, but you get into the world of uh, latencies and heartbeats and timeouts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, but that's something different. That's deploying your own Kubernetes environment. I think what I'm talking about is consuming the Kubernetes yeah. services that, that the cloud providers already natively. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, but that's just, just a deployment part of your you application. To, so all the whole data integration syncing stuff. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, apparently 85% of companies are doing multi-cloud, so uh, I guess... Uh, Lies, damn lies and statistics. <laughs> oh, we're just behind the times, man. It's going so fast. Yeah, maybe. 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 Talk about fast, let's move on. And ah, my turn. Let's talk about the future of data engineering. Let me get the article back. 
Uh, it's an article by Chris Riccomini. Sorry if I butcher your name. It's not a very long article. It's on his own blog site, uh, but it does kind of talk about interesting stuff. <laughs> In this case, data engineering jobs and how they changed. And he's kind of picking out a couple of topics here on how the changes are happening. And when I read this, I was kind of thinking on some of them, but that's already done, isn't it? So I, I thought it was good to just have a talk about it. So links in the show notes as usual, of course. And the first thing he talks about is from batch to real time. And that was the first one I thought, yeah, but hey, everybody's doing real time these days, aren't they? This has already been done, right? Maybe not. <laughs> well, apparently not, apparently not according to him in any, way, in any case. And if I really look at uh, the customers I'm talking to, real time is still a big, um, a big thing. It's, it's going on, it's happening. And I think in both our professional lives, we're very close to real-time processing already. But if you look at our customers, there's a still a bit of a hill to climb there, I think. So it's not that uh, strange to think that a lot of data engineers up to today are still very much ingrained into the batch environments and are slowly getting into real-time. Now, personally, I would have thought we were, would have been uh, uh, call that, uh, further than this today. Because we've been talking about real time since the beginning of the podcast, I think, years ago. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, reality never moves as fast as uh, we feel it does, does it? I think this is this is one of those situations where you have a number of outliers, a number of you know unicorns, call them whatever you like, mm -hmm. who are either were born into this and you know were real time from the very beginning or were kind of leading the way, adopting real-time technologies. But yeah, I completely agree that I think the majority, the widespread majority of organizations are still, real-time is still very much a pipe dream. They're just trying to, you know, understand the basics still. And I think mm -hmm. it's it's very easy for us that have been in the industry for some time to think that this is, this is you know, commonplace and this is everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um and it's it really is not the case. There's a lot of a lot of work still to be done by a lot of organisations to even think about you know what real time would look like for them. Yeah. And also, technology isn't really there yet to do everything that's in batch today in real time. Because once you start doing a, a little piece of your component in real time, all the rest kind of has to follow, right? If one of the chains in the whole data flow can't keep up to the nanoseconds you're expecting, you're in trouble. So. Well, yes, but then also, you know, it's it's got to be it's got to be worthwhile doing it. Yeah. Right? there needs to be a there needs to be a cost benefit analysis on all of these kind of things. Like, it, it, is it are, are you doing real time just for the sake of being able to say yeah. you're doing real time? In which case, you're crazy and stop doing that. Um, if if it's something that actually makes a material benefit to your organization, then great. You know, invest in it and get it done. But it, it's like all of these things. It, it, you need to make sure that it actually has a, a sensible kind of return on investment from making all of those changes or making all of those improvements. Yeah, yeah, good point. I mean, not everything has to be real time. Sometimes even the same use case can be partially real time for the the, the, the very short history and batch for the long history. I mean, that's how big data projects yeah. uh, usually get get built. Those have different yeah. uh, demands and uh, requirements. So, yeah, yeah. good point. 
Second, Indeed. Yeah, second point in the article is talking about connectivity. Where and this is also one I thought, man, are we still living in this world? Where uh, originally people, when you you build a connection between two systems, it was a point-to-point connection, and that apparently is still slowly being replaced by more more bus-oriented structures. The meshes, mm-hmm. buses, Kafka's, and uh, Wi-Fi's out there. Same thing here. I was thinking, yeah, but when I make some, when I design something, I'm also always doing it multi-purpose message busing. That's just how you do it, right? But um, apparently, from the data engineer's mouth, it's still uh, something that's in big transition. Yep. Again, doesn't. It, it's very easy when you're in. Again, when you're in the industry, you're in the bubble, mm-hmm. and the when you're within that particular bubble, you you're so. Uh, bombarded with you know all of these people making these cutting edge decisions and launching these cutting edge projects and doing all of these exciting things that it is human nature to assume that the rest of the world is exactly the same as it is inside your little bubble yep. once you get out of that particular um, reality distortion field <laughs> um, it's you know the 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 rest of the world kind of starts to seep into that and and you know you realize that you've been working with organizations for a long time that have been very much focused on this this view of the world mm-hmm. whereas the, the again the wider spread audience i don't think is there so i think that's a it's a really solid view and a, a, it's possibly not a terribly popular view from a lot of organizations mm-hmm. i think a lot of vendors would like you to think that everybody's doing this and oh, if you haven't done this then you're really behind but I, I just I don't think that's the case for a lot of for a lot of people yeah one of the bubbles I'm thinking about here is education I mean people get data engineering degrees in uh, in school universities they go into the to the work floor and then they go out of that bubble and into the bubble of reality and it's kind of kind of wondering how effective a data engineer fresh out of school can actually be when he's been trained on all the new things, on the decoupled systems and stuff like that, and then has to face reality where it's all still batch-oriented, point-to-point connectivity. It's uh, interesting. I mean, a while ago we had a talk with uh, a new data uh, data engineer who just started in the data engineering world. That's already over a year ago, I think. So maybe something we need to revisit it. Now, the third point in the article was actually the most interesting one for me is where actually the data engineer goes out of his engineering bubble. Because that's mm. uh, he start, the, the, the subtitle is automation and decentralization. What he's actually talking about is not the typical uh, monolithical versus microarchitecture, but more that you have to look at the whys and who can access data and things like that uh, led by GDPR and that kind of recommendation where engineers are used to automate things because basically we're lazy and if you can automate it then I shouldn't be spending my time on it (laughs) on the technical part that's just writing a script or two that's easy enough having some configuration management in there that's fine but now every time you have a data source coming in you have to go through the same security hoops uh, about GDPR personally personally identified information security uh, assignment who can who can receive the data who can't see the data and he's actually talking about data engineers looking at automating that part of it as well which actually means for me i think uh, that the data engineer has to come out of his engineering development scripting bubble and into the business world let's say and 
one differentiation I always I always had in my head, right or wrong, I'll leave it up to the to the audience, between a data scientist and a data engineer is that the data scientist had to have the domain knowledge, expertise of the business in his head, while the data engineer could really focus on the purely technical aspects. But reading this, yeah, it kind of makes sense that uh, as a data engineer, you will need to look at the business as a business, not just as a uh, empty page in VI. Yep, I think that's fair. Yeah, it's a uh, growing up of the of the function, perhaps the matur- maturity of the of the role, and also a bit a bit of recognition that data engineers have a significant part to play. Yeah, and I think we'll be talking more about. Uh, more about automation in the future as well. And I would quite like to um, perhaps investigate some of the other articles. There's, there's quite a few interesting articles which are linked from this one. So I think there's there's the potential for some future investigation here. Mm. <laughs> yeah, again, anyway. not a big article, but it was a kind of a fun uh, read just to put my feet back into the real world of reality. That's too much yep. words. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on, indeed. So this this particular article, I have to thank Jonathan, if you're out there listening. Thank you. Um, he pointed me at this at this article. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes, but be aware, um, you will get tracked if you view it. So to, uh, to, to go into a bit more detail, um, someone um, was asked, so this is a... Uh, uh, a journalist for the New York Times was asked if they would um, be interested in having all of their digital activity tracked and examined in meticulous detail and then published. Sounds like a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> but uh, but they said yes. And they, uh, you know, in order to achieve this, they had to install a special version of uh, the Firefox web browser that had been uh, manipulated by... Um, privacy researchers. So you can actually, if you look at github.com slash Mozilla slash open WPM, you can uh, try it for yourself. Mm-hmm. And this highly instrumented version of Firefox essentially tracks um, and is able to track uh, all of the people that are then tracking you. Um, the journalist then essentially just, you know, carried on through their day and, uh, you know, was doing a variety of different uh, pieces of research on a a certain article and uh, they did it for a number of days although there is a uh, basically a start of day end of day visualization of their their web browsing experience and I find this absolutely fascinating now to be clear none of this should be at all surprising to anybody uh, who has uh, even you know the slightest bit of a clue on (laughs) Uh, privacy and tracking and anonymization and how all of this, the, all of these things work. You're but, not talking about common sense, right? Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, but what I'm what I'm seeing here is, and you know, again, links in the show notes. But be warned if you uh, if you go to the article, you you will be tracked by all of these ad trackers. Um, you know, he starts off. Um, with a, a quick Google search on a particular subject, um, which takes him to a few different articles, which takes him to the actual article. And this first article is on HuffPost. Now, the number of um, sort of tracking resources um, is represented by a dot. So each dot is a tracking resource. Now, 
there are, I would say, you know, maybe 10 or 12 tracking resources that track his initial Google search. You know, when he gets to the, the first article, which is on HuffPost.com, I mean, I don't know how many tracking resources are in that particular circle, but it's <laughs> got to be hundreds. Um, and that's just from like one page, one page view, yep. hundreds of different tracking resources. And these are a mixture of, you know, the single pixel things, the analytics um, that are within the sites, the you know, each individual, um, you know, thing that gets pinged and just the sheer volume of trackers. I mean, from just visiting a single page or a single site, I I know it blows my mind, but the, this this cycle continues. The person goes from, you know, from one article back to his uh, news.google.com results, which again, that's now, that's just, just two um, tracking items through to then a, a free beacon account. Again, you know, what looks to me like hundreds of tracking items. And then Washington Post, same thing. And the, the story just repeats. And it's, the thing I find it really interesting about this particular visualization is it gives you um, a bit of an insight into the order of magnitude kind of difference in tracking between, you know, let's call them like free quote unquote news sites mm -hmm. and sites like google.com or even, you know, medium.com, which, you know, does significantly more tracking than Google, but nowhere near as much as some of these or the majority of these media sites, um, including um, New York Times, by the way, also yep. <laughs> does quite a bit of tracking of people. Uh, and it's in this flow. So they're not, you know, they're not, uh, they haven't excluded themselves from this particular picture, which I think is, shows a bit of integrity and I yep. quite appreciate. Definitely. Um, but yeah, they, he also, and again, the other interesting thing about this article is that he works out basically what his, uh, what his unique ID is, and he is then able to see the flow of his unique ID between the different trackers. So he can he can work out that other trackers know that he's been at other sites before. And I just again, none of this should be terribly surprising. None of this should be new to anybody that isn't kind of at least tangentially aware of of this side of the web. But I I find the visualizations really compelling. I find the descriptions really compelling. I think it's a great article. It's just a shame that I've been tracked from viewing it. <laughs> yeah, no, I so agree. There we go. I agree. I mean, uh, the last two uh, headlines in the article, for the, the, the one with last says new sites were the worst, what you were saying there. But yep. that's just, that's just the nothing is for free in this world, right? I mean, if you're not paying money, you're paying Absolutely. in a different way and your data is valuable. And the last one there, Google, Google everywhere. Um, yeah, I mean, even if you're not going to Google through AdWords and all of the uh, trackers and even more insidiously, I'd say a lot of the jQuery stuff, for example, a lot of those libraries are hosted by Google and are also used for tracking purposes because Google can that way also see what you're taking. So again, Google does a lot for free. Google Maps is out for free. Google Docs, hey, you can use it for free. Gmail, it's all free. Yes, but you're paying somewhere. And the more free it is, the more you're paying yeah. for it. Remember that uh, if you're getting something for free, you are the product. Exactly. 
So, and for people who want to do a, a little exercise from, on uh, for themselves, uh, he was using a very uh, how do you call that uh, a special version of Firefox instrumented. Yep. yep, you can do a light version of that if you're using Firefox. There's an app called uh, or a plugin called Lightbeam. And I've actually mentioned mm. this one a while ago, but it's still there, which you can just add to Firefox for a little while. And once you've uh, gone really disillusioned with how, how, privacy, <laughs> how, how unprivate you are, you can uninstall it again. But that's also a nice eye-opener. It doesn't go into any kind of uh, detail the way this article goes, but it does already. Mm. It, it, I had it running for a, a week, I think, and I deinstalled it because, yeah, <laughs> you don't want to do that. Pretty it's sure it also exists for the other browsers. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's disturbing. It's like paying your taxes, right? You, you do it, you don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's exactly right. Okay, moving on. Uh, moving on, uh, getting up to the end limit. Oh, my turn again. I had, oh yeah, this is a revisiting of something we talked about earlier. Let's get the thing again. Uh, I think it was in episode 153 when we talked about the future of open source. We, uh, at the end of it, mentioned the fact that the uh, Kubernetes security audit was done by the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, CNCF, and they actually uh, open sourced it. Uh, by then, uh, since then, sorry to say, uh, there's an article on the Cloud Native uh, blog uh, site cncf.io about it where they actually go into a little bit more detail where they actually are open sourcing the entire report so you can have all the information out there and uh, how they're saying uh, what they're saying here is they're open sourcing it so that other open source uh, sub, uh, uh, how do you call it projects man I'm doing podcasting I can talk how other open source projects can uh, see how they did it and learn lessons from it to do it themselves. And they're also talking about how they will continue to do this uh, outing uh, exercise for other projects under the Cloud Native uh, umbrella. Specifically the ones that are, um, how, do you, how do they call that? It's not uh, the, the ones that have been matured. They have a word for that. I forget what the word yeah. is. Graduated. I, the graduated, graduated projects. Yeah. Which, of course, makes sense because graduation kind of means it doesn't change that much anymore, at least a lot less when you're still in full development of the first version. And, uh, yeah, as we said uh, in episode 153 as well, auditing is uh, not a a one-thing process. It's a thing you have to do again and again and again and make sure it keeps uh, being updated all the time. And it looks like the CNCF is in this for the long run. So it wasn't just a publicity stunt, although it does, of course, give them some publicity. They do seem to be doing this the right way, I'd say. Definitely. And uh, in fact, in the article, which again links in the show notes, um, you can see the um, the pen test reports for other projects like CoreDNS, Envoy and Prometheus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, great work. Yep. So yeah, that's all I wanted to say about it. Just uh, we did it in, in passing uh, that in that episode, just want to spend a little bit, a little bit more time on it because I think uh, it is a uh, remarkable evolution something I didn't expect to see happening five years ago. Indeed, indeed. And with that, I think our final article for today is a... Uh, really, it's a, it's a Forbes so it's a Forbes article, and I don't have too much to say about this, apart from the fact that I think this is, in my opinion, um, the message that we have been preaching, uh, possibly broadcasting, maybe, um, for the whole time that we've been doing this podcast. So the title is Stop Focusing on Big Data and Start Focusing on Smart Data. And 
the article itself is relatively generic. Um, there's nothing I would say that is particularly, you know, really mind-blowing about this article, but it, it really just does echo the message that we've been, I think, talking about this whole time, which is big data itself is is not going to fix or solve anything. You need to have an idea of what you want to achieve. You need to gather the data for that particular use case. That use case needs to be financially viable, as we've you know, talked to a couple of times on even this episode. And uh, and you know it needs to you need you need to make sure that you'll get a return on investment on that. And it's to me this article is just okay. Pretties it up and it breaks it down to into a few phases or steps or things that it, it thinks are important. But this is, I think this, this is just people finally catching up or finally repeating the message that we've just been talking about this whole time. Yeah, it's amazing that this isn't um, just common knowledge by now. I mean, is there, are there still vendors out there just selling big data for the fact of having a lot of data? I mean, big data, It's it, it should be a means to an end, not an end in itself. Yes, you need big data to do analytics, but you're doing the analytics, which means you need to have big data, and that's how it should be looked at. But uh, I guess it's, it's, uh, it's worth repeating, so people pay attention. I don't know. Yep. I, again, I think it's 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 living in the bubble, living in that reality distortion field. You know, yeah. once you step outside sure of that, maybe the uh, maybe the world isn't quite as enlightened as you thought it was. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I think we we just need to ke- carry on fighting the good fight. Yeah. Although, would you say that uh, the hype has gone down a little bit now? I mean, uh, a couple of years ago, everybody had their big data solution and was selling you things that were going to make you billionaires in zero time. The snake oil, we used to, used to call it. Um, mm. Recently, it's been better, I'd say. I've, there's still there's still stuff going on in the still commercial environment, but I don't see the, the, the most flagrant misuse of big data has gone down a bit, I think. I, I, think, I think that is true. I think there is a lot less uh, big data washing. I think it has possibly and slightly been replaced by blockchain art- well i was <laughs> gonna say ai washing i think everything now has everything now seems to contain ai yeah um regardless yeah, of 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 the reality so i i think uh, the same story i think is still there it's just they've just changed the words that they're washing yeah. things with and so yeah i, th- I think there's, there's there still is a, a very strong element of that going on well, it's a very sad note to end this episode on. I'm afraid so. Yeah, nothing else from you, nothing else to make a smile at the end of this. YouTube! Go to YouTube! <laughs> Find the YouTubes. Find the roaring elephant on the YouTubes. Subscribe. Three magical steps to be for you to uh, enjoy your week with. Okay, that made me laugh. Thank you very much. And with that, that is all the definitely all the time we have for today. You can support us, this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps. As you heard, uh, heard Dave talk about, you can go to YouTube and do whatever he said you should do there. Also, you can go to www.roaringelf.org and find a link to the Patreon page and said YouTube page as well. You can follow us on Twitter using the Hadoopcast tag and you can send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is John. 
And my name is Dave. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you there.